I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. Martin Shipton, and today I'm with Lord Peter Hayne, who is the former MP for Neath, who was a cabinet member under both Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, now sits in the House of Lords. His story is quite well known to most people about how he was brought up in South Africa, how his parents were anti-apartheid activists, and how at a very young age he had a crucial role to play in delivering a funeral elegy. One thing that I wanted to start off by asking you about, Peter, and of course we could talk for many hours about many things, when you were a young lad in South Africa, did you contemplate being a politician at all, and did you perhaps contemplate being a politician in South Africa? No, it never entered my thoughts. I mean, I was a a teenager helping my mum and dad, and that brought you into politics in a very harsh way, given what was happening to them, being jailed when I was 11 years old, then being issued with banning orders, stopping them both getting involved in political activity, and uh, finally being forced into exile when they stopped my dad working as an architect. So we came to Britain and settled in London, had no money, nowhere to live, so we stayed with a friend in southwest London, and my dad had one thing, and that was a job. To be frank, at school, I was not somebody who ever took part in plays, in the kind of theatre. I didn't engage in public speaking. I was shied away from all that. So you came over to London, and you became a student. And, of course, you then, I suppose, as a student branched out into British politics somewhat, didn't you? although you were very internationalist in your perspective. But you were a member of the Liberal Party. And I remember that when I was at York University, the president of the Students' Union was one of your friends, who's now a Labour MP, called Richard Burden. And he stood on this ticket of Libertarian Socialist Union of Liberal Students. And I thought at the time, this doesn't ring true. This sounds preposterous. How can you be a... A uh, libertarian socialist and a liberal simultaneously? Well, we were young liberals. I joined the young liberals when I was still at school, actually, and the only way I could join in southwest London was to form my own branch. So I found myself as chair with a treasurer and a secretary. The three of us launched it, and then things got going then. And it was a very exciting time to be engaged in, in youth politics. I was a young liberal rather than a liberal with a big L. And we were libertarian socialists. That's how my ideas formed in that period of 1968, uh, the Paris Revolt, student agitation on British campuses, the anti-Vietnam War protests. I was at Grosvenor Square for the big demonstrations in 1968. So my uh, there was lots of radical activity and left-wing conferences, and I like Richard, my friend, was a libertarian socialist, and we called ourselves libertarian socialists, and we wrote about it at the time, being, that's to say, not state control of everything and nationalisation of everything, but bottom-up socialism. And in a way, my ideas haven't changed in their values and their principles at all from those uh, origins. David Ellis Thomas would probably say he shared the same uh, principles. He may do. <laughs> he may well do. He's a, he's a good man, Davidel. So what was it that took you into the Labour Party eventually? Well, as I got older, and I reached the age of 26, 27, age 26, having 
got a, a first degree at London University, then studied at Sussex University for a, what became a PhD, or tried to. I then had to get a job when that was completed, and I went to work, applied for a job with the Union of Post Office Workers, also in south-west London. To my surprise, I got it. And it was an indication of going towards the labour movement then. And I was very attracted to the ideas of Tony Benn and uh, Neil Kinnock as well, people on the, the rising left of the Labour Party that seemed to offer the same radical future that I increasingly identified with. And uh, as I got older in the Liberal Party, I was less and less comfortable. I couldn't stay a young Liberal all my life, so... Um, uh, that uh, meant I joined the Labour Party, and I was uh, never, never doubted that at all. It was the best thing to have done. And at what stage did you start thinking in terms of having a career as a politician? Well, again, I mean, when I joined, I had no thoughts of becoming an MP. People can believe it or not, but I didn't. In fact, one of the first things I did was get involved in local council election campaigns and, in a way, taught local Labour activists in Putney how to do community politics and really engage with local people in a much more effective way than they'd done, and which the Liberals were very good at, and it came out of young Liberal sort of philosophy for community politics. And I did that, and then three years, four years later, when there was a selection for the former Labour MP Hugh Jenkins's successor, he'd been defeated in the Thatcher victory of 79, and people urged me to put myself forward. And when it arose, I wasn't actually thinking of getting involved at all. And I found myself selected, and suddenly I was a parliamentary candidate, standing against the uh, infamous David Mellor, who people at the time, the private eye at the time, described him as about as nice as a mouthful of brill cream, which I think summed it up. And that was, which election was that, then? That was the 1983 election, when we got absolutely hammered. We yeah. ran... What was reported, the Labour Party headquarters said, was the most effective campaign in throughout the country. Very energetic. We had hundreds of activists literally swarming around every street in the constituency. But you know, I got 36%. You can't defy the national swings. And it was actually another eight years before you got elected after that, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, so as I stood again in 1987, that was where I lived, and I and exactly the same result at the high noon of Thatcherism. And my friends came to me afterwards and said, look, you can't keep doing this, Peter. You know, we'd, we'd like to see you in Parliament. And one thing led to another, and I got a phone call one Monday morning in my office, which I used to go into quite early in the research department of the, by now, Union of Communication Workers, now the Communication Workers Union. And um, it was from a trade unionist... Transport and General Workers Trade Unionist Keith Jones, and he said um, the MP for Neath has just announced to his general committee on the Friday night, much to their shock, that he was going to retire. It's wide open. There's no front runners. Why don't you apply? And prior to that, and that's how I met Keith Jones and others like Terry Thomas, who was working for the the GMB, the union of which I was a member. Prior to that, I'd got involved in the selection at Bliner Gwent. And Klaus Smith, who was then the sitting European MP, had pretty well sewn it up. There were no, there were no candidates invited to the wards, and so he got their nominations, except for one, Tradiga. And Michael Foote encouraged me to apply to 
for the Tradiga selection. It was an open selection, the only open one, uh, and I actually won it, including against Clough. However, I was kept off the shortlist for the selection. That then, you know, obviously went away, and I thought really very little more about it until I got this phone call on that Monday morning, which proved to be an absolutely amazing change in my life. Now, at that time, it's still the case to a large extent. Uh, Labour has got a significant amount of support in Wales, and there are quite a number of safe seats. There's always the allegation when somebody comes in from outside, um, particularly made by people from other parties, that the candidate who's coming in is a carpetbagger. Now, when you decided to apply for these seats in Wales and ultimately got selected in Neath, what was your perception of Wales as an entity? I mean, did you just see these seats as seats which would give you a passport into Parliament, or did no. you have a perception of Wales as somewhere well, a bit I, different? I, I did, because I'd visited Wales quite a lot and spoken at meetings, anti-apartheid meetings and uh, Labour meetings as well, and Swansea and Cardiff in particular. Uh, no, I was I was always pro-devolution. My libertarian socialism always made me strongly in favour of devolution, and therefore I said at the selection the ward meeting is that I was in favour of devolution and an elected assembly for Wales, even though it was not um, party policy actually uh, quite yet, although it very quickly became so official policy. You know, I found myself, because I wasn't English, even though I was South African brought up, I found myself having a, a an affinity for particularly the Welsh Valleys. And I was very fortunate my first meeting when Terry Thomas, the, uh, the, who was the miners' leader, the vice president of the miners during the big strike, very popular in the NUM and well-known in the labour movement, uh, when he introduced me to a number of miners of NUM reps in the Neath area, and I was very fortunate to meet uh, two people who became very close friends, in particular Howard Davis, who's an amazing man who I trust with my life, probably became my closest friend. They, after an interrogation uh, of a fairly kind of direct kind, which I didn't mind at all, they decided to back me. And so I got off to a flying start. There were 30 applicants. I was not a, I couldn't have been a carpetbagger because a carpetbagger is dropped in, as it were. It was quite a tough selection. And, you know, I spent three or four months travelling up and down the M4 on the, the main line to go to ward meetings all over Neath and trade union meetings and others and, and visiting as many people as I could. And it really chimed with me personally as well as um, politically that I just felt this is where, if it worked out, I wanted to be. And fortunately, I did, and I nearly won it on the first ballot. So it's getting up towards 30 years now since your association with Wales began. Yeah. Do you have any regrets at all? Could you have no. been a, an MP in another part of Britain? I have no idea, but I don't have any regrets at all. I mean, I think Wales is absolutely fantastic. Uh, I love it here. I like the people. And as I grew into it, learnt more and experienced more. I, I suppose, in a way, it, it felt like home from home in a different... I don't think I've ever said that before, but it did. And I was then able to, to play a role in, in helping um, Wales move forward... Uh, and helping the Welsh Labour move forward. And, of course, 
before long you were on the front bench. Uh, subsequently, in the period after 1997, when there was of course a Labour landslide, you entered government. What was your approach at that time towards how you wanted to see the Labour Party develop? Because obviously it was New Labour which had won the election under Tony Blair, who was a very charismatic leader. And at that time you were closely associated with him, although you were seen by many people as perhaps a, a little to the left of him. Yeah, I wouldn't say just a little to the left of him. I was never a Blairite. And so I was never a favoured son, as it were, to be suddenly thrust up the ministerial ladder. Again, I mean, this just happens to be true. I, I explained why I never thought I'd be an MP. When I became an MP, I never thought I'd be on the front bench. And when I became on the front bench, I never thought I'd be a minister. When I became a minister, I didn't ever think I'd end up a senior cabinet minister. But that's what happened. I think Tony Blair, he told me, he brought me in when he first appointed me to the front bench, in the whip's office, actually, he, he said, uh, I, I want to see, you know, you've got great ability and I want people of all the talents in in my team and you'll have to prove yourself. And I was quite still outspoken about the direction of New Labour. I thought um, that we were neglecting our base and we were we were not sufficiently vigorous in promoting fundamental socialist values and I thought we would pay for it and in the end we did, in my view not just over Iraq, but in a wider kind of draining of, of, of support. And remember, Labour lost between 1997 and our defeat in 2010 5 million votes. But 4 million of those votes were lost under Tony Blair. So it wasn't just Gordon Brown's fault. For me, it was a great privilege to be, and it was very exciting to be appointed to the, the Welsh office, because you had responsibility prior to devolution, and I remained a passionate devolutionist. In fact, I was censored by Welsh Labour's national executive in 1994, I think, when the late Paul Flynn and I and John Owen Jones went to uh, went to a conference, a Parliament for Wales conference in Llangollen, and there were applied people there and liberals and people of no party who were passionate about devolution like I was, and we got hauled over the coals, because although the party was then committed to an assembly, it was not committed to a fully-fledged law-making parliament, which is what I always believed, and then subsequently was able to deliver as Secretary of State in the 2006 Government of Wales Act. Chris, there was this very strange business, wasn't there? You had to be quite strategic in your approach because there were quite a lot of MPs in particular who were not enthusiastic about the Assembly, not in favour of the Assembly initially at all, and then they didn't really want to get uh, legislative powers or primary legislative powers. And so you came up with this strange business of ELCOs where you had the Assembly sort of going to another legislature, the uh, Westminster, to to seek permission to legislate in particular areas. And there were quite a few people at the time who thought that, you know, that was quite a, um, an insulting thing. But as it turned out, it was a stepping stone, wasn't it? Did you always see it as a stepping stone? Yes, because the 2006 Act, which took an awful lot of negotiation, and I'll describe the, the toings and froings in my memoirs outside in, uh, was a two-part act. It immediately gave more powers to the Assembly through these legislative consent orders, as they were called, so that um, the Assembly could legislate on establishing, for example, an oldest persons commissioner 
by asking Parliament to pass a legislative consent order on more or less the principle, a piece of secondary legislation, uh, and then that could be taken through the Assembly, whereas previously all bills had to go to um, Westminster to, for the Assembly then to, as it were, administer and deliver them. So that was the first part of it, and it meant you could immediately make progress and start doing things, and a lot was done. But it was always, And then there was the second part, and a lot of my colleagues were very resistant to it, which was full lawmaking powers, in which I'd always believed, and I knew I'd always believed in it, and they were therefore a bit suspicious some Others were enthusiastic. And so it was a very delicate negotiation, including in the Cabinet and through Whitehall, in which there was a lot of resistance to it. Uh, I had particular difficulty from John Prescott, the Deputy Prime Minister, who resented the fact that his own favoured regional English devolution had been defeated in the 2004 referendum in northeast of England. But it was a Mickey Mouse proposition. I knocked on doors and, you know, you could just tell people were not going to buy it didn't have anything like the powers of the Welsh Assembly, let alone London. So what was the, the point of it? Uh, and I supported him, but then when it came to me sort of uh, arguing for full lawmaking Welsh Assembly, he was then very difficult and tried to kind of block it, and others did, and I had to kind of get around that and have fairly difficult negotiations and a bit of left-right kind of moving to... Um, to get to garner the support. Tony Blair was quite supportive, but he didn't want an argument on this, and that was why he was quite vulnerable. So some Labour MPs went to see him directly to try and thwart it. But the way I eventually won it was to promise a referendum to implement it. So it was a retrospective referendum in the sense that I'd already legislated for full lawmaking powers, but to trigger them you needed a referendum, which eventually arrived in 2011, from which time Wales has had its uh, full lawmaking powers. So it, it, it required careful negotiation, but I was very proud of it and remain proud of it because I think increasingly as the coalition, Tory-led coalition government with the Liberals got implemented, if Wales had not had ind- independent lawmaking powers, I think it would be really tough, really tough. Why did you never consider standing for the Assembly yourself? Because I was in a Westminster groove and I thought that was my future. You know, if I'd already been living in Wales and I was making a... Say now, if, if the young Peter Hayne was already living in Wales, so aged 40 when I first applied to be selected in Neath, I think I would go to the Assembly if that choice was available to me. It may not have been because of my unusual background. Because that's where you can... Where most of the powers are, actually. But no, it never, it never occurred to me to, to come to the Assembly like Ron Davis uh, and, and Rodri did, for example, and others. I just thought my, my sort of past had been in Westminster and my future would be in Westminster. Do you think that the vision that you had for a devolved Wales has worked out well? Because what one can do, I mean, there are people who will say on various measurements in terms of the economy in terms of health, in terms of education, the great promise that the Assembly seemed to offer has not actually been fulfilled. But I think people's expectations in that sense were wildly unrealistic. I mean, making change, and if I didn't know this already, and I'd been through the anti-apartheid struggle, and that was a hard, bitter, generational struggle, really hard. People take it for granted now that Nelson Mandela just walked free. 
Uh, he didn't. It was a very bitter, hard fight, and we were in a minority most of the time in, in Wales and in Britain in, in furthering that fight. And similarly, in government, it's really hard to make change. I mean, I was a minister, I think it sounds immodest, but I think people would judge it if they look at what I did um, from the beginning in the Welsh office, made a lot of changes, made a lot of differences. But it is hard, and you've got to be on the case all the time, and you've got to keep driving it forward. Being a minister, you know, okay, you've got the kudos and all that. That never mattered to me or was never important to me. But actually driving it forward, you've got to keep on pushing. You've got to work with the machine, which is resistant to change and risk-averse. The Welsh civil service is no different from any other service in that respect. Very can't do rather than can do. I don't make a particular criticism of the the girls and boys in the in 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 the Welsh civil service um, they do a conscientious job uh, but uh, it, it, the resistance to change is quite strong so i think you have to judge the assembly's achievements in that respect let me ask the other question about it could anybody now realistically argue for the assembly to be abolished you know i know there are there's a party which is there's a uk party that. yeah but i mean the it's abolish not, the assembly it's party. not a serious this is not serious politics it's mainstream, really. I mean, the Conservatives have embraced it, having vigorously fought against it and nearly defeated us uh, in 1997. That was a very tough campaign to run, as I did for Welsh Labour under Ron Davis. So, you know, if, if you're expecting some kind of, kind of dreamy set of achievements that were never realisable, but actually I think people in honest judgment would say... Done pretty well, got distinctive policies, just, you know, the um, organ donation bill now going through the House of Lords in Westminster at the moment is a Welsh copyrighted piece of legislation about um, presumed consent to your organ donations. Now, OK, that's not of the order of Brexit or the economy, but, it, you know, it makes a difference to people's lives, keeps people alive. There's a lot of initiatives the Assembly took Older Persons Commission, a Children's Commission, quite a lot of other things, free uh, bus passes for pensioners, which actually I got in the Welsh Labour Manifesto single-handed for 1999 because I was in charge of it and nobody was taking much interest to in what went on. I remember number 10 phoning me up and saying, how did, this, how did you get this in the manifesto? I said, I'll put it in it. The answer was, this is Pat McFadden, now a Labour MP, is Tony Blair's political secretary. He said, but we're going to have to do it in England. I said, good thing too, Pat. <laughs> but... Um, so I think I'm proud of what's been achieved, and it's whether there's been a lack of achievement, and then you've got to ask what was realistically possible is on the economy. I published a, um, a, a document, a policy paper in 1998, pledging to end the gap in GDP between the, the English average and Wales's average. Well, we're nowhere near that. In fact, it's broadened. It's widened as the southeast just roared ahead. Welsh GDP per head has increased, but the southeast just gone over the horizon. That's why uh, we've relatively fallen back. And it was a product of collaboration then, as subsequent similar documents have been with the trade union movement and, and the CBI and other business elements. But it hasn't been achieved, and that remains still a target. And it's not easy to... It's perhaps a subject for another podcast interview if you were ever interested, Martin. <laughs> Do you think it's unfortunate in some respects, from a democratic point of view, that Labour has been in permanent power for uh, coming up to 20 years? I think in government, 
I learnt that it's very hard to renew yourself. But the longer we were in power, I could sense some of my colleagues, I like to think it didn't apply to me, it's for others to judge, became more and more managerial, lost their political sort of sharpness. And I think the longer you were in power, the more that happens to you as individual ministers. And as a, as a party, you become used to the furniture of power. However, we have never been certain of staying in power. There's always been the chance of losing it, either to the Rainbow Coalition, which was mooted prior to the, the deal with Plaid, so which then, you know, as it were, vanquished that, that option. It's still possible. I mean, I listen to what Adam Price says, and I'm a big admirer of his as a politician. I don't agree with him on independence and other things, but I think he's extremely capable, the most capable of the Plaid Assembly members, in my humble opinion. Uh, and I don't know that he would rule out another rainbow coalition option. But it has kept Welsh Labour on our toes. I mean, 1999 and that cathartic series of, of defeats, that was a pretty big shock to the system. And it was then that I was involved uh, with um, the then communications director we appointed, Hugh Evans, a very capable Welshman, but who'd been working in London for New Labour, came up with the Welsh Labour brand, as it were, and accompanying policies to it. It's no good just changing your image unless there's substance to it. So in a sense, a knockback there forced a change. And then uh, there were a series of renewals took place through that change being forced by the fact that we couldn't guarantee because of the electoral system for the Assembly to keep winning. So it's not like this, the situation, the ANC in South Africa, after what is it, coming up to 25 years in power and an election due in May, this May, where it's been in continuous power with no real prospect of being defeated, except that its senior members realise it faced defeat, that's to say coming under, because they have a true proportional system, they're under 50% for the first time, under President Zuma's corrupt and dreadful uh, rule and his favoured successor, that's why one of the reasons why his favoured successor didn't win, and Cyril Ramaphosa, who is in the Nelson Mandela uh, mould, did, fortunately for the country and for people like me who took part in the anti-apartheid struggle. But I use that example because the ANCs never really looked, except for that moment, defeat in the eyes. You've, you've got to, as a party that's been in power in Wales for as long as Welsh Labour, you've got to face defeat, because defeat is a very important democratic check and, a, and in Welsh Labour's case, proved a very important renewal impetus as well. Do you think there's a greater chance that, that Welsh Labour might be defeated in 2021 than any previous occasion? Look, I've only been in politics 50 years, in, including in some of the most senior posts in, in the Cabinet and so forth. And I used to think I knew what was likely to happen. I, th I used to think I had my ear pretty close to the ground, and I think most people would probably assess that as being the case, maybe even you, Martin. But I don't know what's going to happen this year, what's going to happen over Brexit, well, let's talk uh, about Brexit let alone now. what's going to happen in 2021. Uh, you're uh, obviously a vehement opponent of um, Brexit, um, and you were campaigning uh, for Remain uh, back in 2016. I remember, Peter, actually, on the evening of the referendum getting a phone call from you when, I think at the time, you thought that Remain was going to win. 
What went wrong? Well, I did think Romain was going to win on the evening, and you were right on the eve of it, and I did call you. But actually, if you look back three weeks before and interviews I did, I don't know whether it was with you, but certainly um, with uh, BBC Wales, I actually was really worried. And they've got me on record saying I'm being filmed in, within my own constituency. Because I was going around the valleys, and I, I was in charge of Welsh Labour's campaign. Carwyn Jones asked me to lead it. Um, but um, I decided to focus all my energy in the valleys. If you couldn't win the valleys, you couldn't win. Uh, Wales on this issue, where you know every vote counted, whether in Gwynedd or in Newport, and it was really bad. It was really tough. And I phoned up um, Will Straw, Jack Straw's son, as CEO, chief executive of the Remain campaign, and I said, "We're going to lose this, Will." And he sounded really startled. And I told him why, because the Leave campaign was pressing all the buttons. When you get the messages of a campaign coming back off the doorstep. It was about immigration, it was about the 350 million a week for the NHS principally, and taking back control was a very clever slogan. It's complete illusion, it's complete fantasy. We're going to lose control, actually, through Brexit. So I did warn, uh, but then I, you know, people started to say, I remember talking to Cohen a couple of days beforehand when we were in Pontypridd and doing, Paul Murphy was there, Rodri was there, Cohen was there, I was there, former Secretaries of State and First Minister and former First Minister, and we were marching down uh, near the market and photographed, including in the Western Mail, doing that. And Cameron was saying, I think it's coming back to us. And I was kind of swept along with that a bit. But I had, and I'm on the record as warning, that we were going to lose it. Why did we lose it? I think it was the chance that Cameron, who must rank as the worst Prime Minister in modern memory, although Theresa May is running him close. I don't say that because they're Tories. I just think to plunge the, the country into this nightmare, which is what it is, and it's by no means finished, and it's going to continue to get worse, was thoroughly responsible just to square his own party, or think he was squaring his own party. I think people in the valleys decided we're going to give the political class a kicking. We've had the financial crisis, and it's not us for a six. But on top of that... You know, I've been warning about this, and I may have spoken to you about it or not. Uh, I don't know. But people will know that I've been warning about the erosion of Labour's base in traditional base in the valleys uh, and in our industrial heartlands because the trade union movement was was losing members. The big workplaces, which, which provided jobs, whether they were the mines or, or manufacturing, jobs where people had a secure job, they didn't. They weren't, you know, millionaires. Never, never anywhere in sight of that. But they had secured jobs, reasonably paid. Life was getting better, more or less. They were in a house. Their kids were going to get a council house. Um, there was a sense of future. They had pensions. None of these things exist anymore. There's not enough housing to go around. Pensions are not. Uh, virtually nobody's got a decent pension in the private sector, unless you're some, you know, a captain of industry. Uh, and the public sector has been stripped to the bone through austerity, completely needless, and dogmatic, ideologically dogmatic austerity. But that's another story. Remember, the debt that we had, the national debt after the banking crisis, was half that after the Second World War fighting Hitler. We had a colossal debt, double that after the, after the banking crisis. We didn't have austerity 
okay, there was rationing, but we built the NHS under Nye Bevan's leadership. We built millions of houses, and Tory governments in the 50s did following us as a Labour government. And actually, the economy grew, and the debt came down, and life got better. This uh, sort of scorched-earth austerity, I think people were just fed up with it. I remember speaking to somebody in Merthyr saying... um, but, you know, this area is getting more money from the, the European Union than anywhere else in the UK, with the possible exception of Northern Ireland. And you look over there at the, the heads of the Valley Road. I mean, it's being dueled because of European money, and it's very important for Wales. He said, not to me it isn't. He said, I just see these BMWs and, uh, and Mercedeses driving past from my back window on the Pennywhan estate, and um, it's nothing to do with me. And it was that sentiment was behind... Yeah, there was antagonism to Brussels and so on. But actually, there was racism involved as well. But, you know, when people are insecure and when people are angry because their economic future is not certain uh, and austerity is just sort of cleaning the ground from under their feet, then they find scapegoats. That's been historically true. <laughs> it was the Jewish community... In the past, it is at the moment again, it's now also the Muslim community, but it was black people for a long, long time. And I was involved in the anti-Nazi league and in fighting the National Front and all these fascist Nazi groups and racist groups. So, yeah, it was, but it's because people were fed up and they were told by Michael Gove and all these other irresponsible leave leaders, you know, there were 80 million Turks about to invade. I mean, that was the biggest lie of the whole lot. Total lie. They never repeated. In fact, I think Gove tried to say he didn't say it. So, yeah, it did resonate when people are fed up. It resonated, no question. What do you think of the state of the Labour Party at the moment? I'm very concerned. I mean, the latest UK poll uh, shows that we've come back into the mid-20s. And When we won in 97, and every other time Labour has won, we've been well ahead at this stage in the electoral cycle. Jeremy Corbyn fought a brilliant campaign in 2017, absolutely brilliant campaign, and frankly surprised everybody, me included, and I don't think there was a Labour MP elected who wasn't astounded by the performance. But it was still a very bad result. We may have done fine in terms of the overall percentage to get above 40%, which we hadn't done since Tony Blair's heyday in 1997 and 2001. But we were very far from winning key marginal seats in the Midlands and elsewhere that you need to win to form a Labour government, and there's no sign we're about to win them now. So although we may be surprised by another kind of leap up the polls in the course of a campaign. I think that 2017 was a product of particular circumstances in which there was deep antagonism to Theresa May's uh, continued premiership. I mean, she she fought, everybody acknowledges it, a terrible campaign. There was that debacle over um, elderly care. And she provided no leadership, no inspiration, and uh, Jeremy was very inspiring, drawing crowds by the thousand and the tens of thousands, and motivated people to vote, perhaps who hadn't been voting for quite people on the progressive side of politics, and the Liberals had completely shot themselves in the foot with that disreputable coalition deal, uh, and the the complete somersault over student fees symbolising 
they cave in to Tory austerity and to right, a right-wing Tory agenda. I mean, the Tory party since 2010 has made Margaret Thatcher look like a liberal by comparison. Now, OK, she closed the mines, uh, and OK, um, she wouldn't have favoured gay rights or gay marriage or progressive causes like that that the, the Tories have sort of swung behind. Fine. But actually, economically, these people are the real scorched-earth Tories. I mean, this austerity is diabolical. And yet, they're ahead of Labour. They are ahead of Labour, and Labour needs to ask itself why. And why? what's the answer? Well, I think, I think it's complex. If I were in the Labour leadership now, which I'm not, uh, I'm a humble backbench peer, uh, I would be asking some very hard questions. Because this government, Tory government, is making an absolute total mess of Brexit, was always going to, and it's going to get worse, because even if Theresa May gets her deal through, as seems to be what's now being signalled, it's a disastrous deal, but even if she somehow sneaks it through, because everybody in the Tory party is just determined to kind of uh, get Brexit come what may, and her bill is the, her deal is the only way to do that, nothing is settled about a future trading relationship. So this instability and uncertainty for business, for individuals, individual citizens in Wales and the rest of the UK is going to continue for years. I would predict years and years. Because the reason everything has been so shambolic is because the fundamental problem is that the Brexiteers and Theresa May leading them has tried to argue that you can have all the benefits of being in the European Union with none of the obligations. Cakeism. Yes, cakeism. But we all know from, you know, whether it's our local rugby club or our local chess club or any organisation we're a member of, if you want all the, the things that come with that membership that caused you to join us in the first place, you've got to obey the rules. I mean, it's like Wales going into the next World Cup and saying, yeah, we're determined to play in the next World Cup and we're entitled to be there, but we don't obey the offside rule. Well, they're going to say, sorry, guys, <laughs> you can't come in. You can't have those benefits of being in the World Cup. Now, we are exiting the European Union, but we want to keep our trade going. We want to keep our services economy thriving. We want to keep our visa-free access. We want to keep our emergency health care that we get. We want to keep our mobile phone roaming charges for data and not just calls and the European continent, where most people go on their holidays if they go abroad at all. All of these things, well, they're not going to be there if we just try to square this impossible circle. What should it be? There should have been a levelling with people right at the beginning, and what Theresa May in either could have achieved, she could have achieved what I call a one-nation Brexit, by at the beginning saying, OK, the country's voted, the UK's voted, uh, narrowly, 52-48, it's split down the middle instead of this winner-takes-all attitude. And we'll therefore stay in the single market and the customs union, we'll exit, but we'll protect our jobs and our economy and the other things, our flights and you know the other things that could have come with that, including the, the mobile roaming charges and so on. But she didn't. She went for appeasing her hard right, because otherwise they might have tried to topple her, because the Tory party is so rapidly Brexit that he's just blinkered on it. If she'd done that, she'd have won a parliamentary majority, at the expense, however, of dividing her own party. She put her party before the community, before the country, 
And she's paid the price for it ever since, and the country's paid the price, and it's going to continue paying the price. If we ever do fully Brexit, because I foresee the transitional period till October 2020, we're not going to settle a future trade deal by then, being extended by a year and then another year, and who knows, she may be out of power by then anyway. Uh, so I think we're in for the years and years of self-harm, economic and political self-harm. I travel quite a lot to South Africa, um, where I'm a visiting professor at, at um, the Witts University in Johannesburg, and I really enjoy the teaching. I'm also a visiting professor at the University of South Wales, which I enjoy as well. And people just can't understand what's happened to Britain. They think we've gone mad. People say, you know, whether we've agreed with what Britain has done from time to time, or colonialism or whatever, you used to at least be stable and solid and sensible and, you know, a reliable international kind of actor. Now you just look like you've you've lost your marbles. This is what people say to me. And I can't disagree. Do you see any hope in the future? Well, I'm by life, uh, you know, by instinct and temperament and sort of stance an optimist. But I must say, this is the most disillusioning period in British politics that I have ever faced. I mean, I've faced tough times, not just personally, but politically for what I believe in, whether it's the advance of, of racism and fascism and Nazism in the late 70s, or whether it's the battle against apartheid, which was a hard battle, as I said, or whether it's Labour winning against that, the Thatcher sort of grip in the 80s. Very hard. But I, this, where all of your ideals uh, of internationalism, Europeanism, internationalism, the, the march of progress with everybody regardless of their colour of their skin, their religion, their disability, their sexuality, their gender, anything else that, that distinguishes individual citizens from each other. You know, there's been progress on, on that, but in, in terms of fundamental values, all of those values are now being, in a sense, attacked. And there's a great reactionary onslaught on the progress that we've made, whether it's the progress of the trade union movement, the progress of the Labour Party in getting high-quality public services, getting a strong economy as well. Uh, but the very values, I mean, some ugly stuff around here, around now. I made a speech in the Lords late last year in which I, and I was quite frightened when I researched it, you've got a convergence now of an increase, a frightening increase in Islamophobic attacks a frightening increase in anti-Semitic attacks and a frightening increase in racist attacks. And we've never had these three things converge together before. The statistics, which I deployed in my Lord's speech, didn't get any attention, are actually quite disturbing. And you've got all these ugly sentiments and actual physical events like attacks on, in communities happening attacks on mosques, attacks on synagogues, attacks on black people, all happening at the same time. And the economy, weak, and austerity continuing seemingly forever. Elderly care in an absolute scandalous sort of criminal uh, shambles. Housing, desperate homelessness and desperate housing shortage. I mean, there's very big issues, which our politics is just not capable of, of tackling. Do you think the Labour Party is in a fit state to tackle these issues? Well, if we got into power, I think we'd tackle them all. 
I, one of the, the, the things that I strongly support Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell on is, an, is their rejection of the neoliberalism, even in a kind of neoliberal light policy. Uh, that I'm afraid my good friend Ed Miliband and uh, along with Ed Balls adopted, and it didn't succeed because it wasn't compelling. Uh, they've they've gone for a Keynesian, a radical Keynesian policy, and I think that's salvation for Wales and salvation for Britain. So I'll keep fighting for that. And if we got into a position where we had you know a credible platform and managed to learn some of the lessons, including wiping anti-Semitism out of the party and anybody who practices it. It's, it's an absolute sort of uh, existential curse, that. It's, it's really... For, Labour has been the anti-racist party all, our, all of our lives as a party, and to find ourselves labelled anti-Semitic just goes... You know, it goes to your soul, really. And you can't win an election as a party depict with the whole of the Jewish community against you, including Labour voters in the Jewish you just can't win an election. So until we sort these things out and we focus on the, the good economic policy we have and the good health care policy we have and the good schools policy, health policy, and we could reel off a lot of good policies, we've got to get in a position where we can actually win power and put them into effect. Can you see Jeremy Corbyn in Downing Street? Well, it's quite possible that um, anybody can beat Theresa May. So I think it's possible that, that Jeremy can get into Downing Street, and I'd like to see him there. But you can't get there from mid-twenties where we are now. Thanks very much, Peter Hayne. Thank you. Thanks for listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. We'll be back for more next week. 